Welcome everyone to the next episode of the Let's Get Real podcast, the show that delves deep in the stories of resilience, courage and transformation. Today I'm joined by Unlocking Potential founder, Gethin Jones. Welcome Gethin. Uh, thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you today. Yeah, we've we've got a lot to cover. I've listened to some of your your YouTube videos and and read some of your material from from interviews you've given previously, and it's 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 an amazing story um, from where you came from to where you are now. But just just for the sake of the listeners, Gethin, can you tell everyone what you do currently with Unlocking Potential? Yeah, so uh, so Unlocking Potential is a company and I work within prisoners, charities and local authorities. Uh, and I mainly train up and develop uh, uh, frontline prison officers, probation officers, social workers, substance misuse workers, anybody at all really that works with some of the hardest people to reach within society. Uh, and what I try to do is uh, try to develop in a way where they can create human to human relationships with those they serve. And, and, and alongside that as well, I also do work with uh, client groups, whether that's prisoners or people on probation or other people as well, uh, about uh, how they can learn to take more responsibility and start to trust a system that they fundamentally mistrust. Uh, things have shifted a little bit because of COVID uh, and not being able to get out and about anything. And uh, I've also now started to become a, a consultant and I'm doing consultancy work in relation to the reunification within probation in England and Wales. Uh, I do quite a number of stuff, but it's it's more about sort of a, a prison reform and sort of like trying to make a more humanistic system rather than a, a system-based system. Yeah, now you mentioned obviously the system and, and what you're doing um, currently with helping those on the front line um, and others who may be in contact with, and I don't like using this term, but, but service users. Yep. Now, your experiences are quite unique in terms of how you worked within that system or how you came to be within that system. Can you take me back to when you first experienced the authorities or when you first encountered the police for the first time? I, I believe you were aged 11, is that correct? Uh, well, so <clears throat> I, I had contact with the police before that. Uh, so if, if I just explain, first of all, about sort of like when I first had contact with the system, as I call it. So, so I always say I was born into the system. And what I mean by that was social services were there from the day I was born. Uh, and and because of the dysfunction that was going on within my life, it it, it came out in my uh, behaviour. Yeah, so the trauma came out in my behaviour. So uh, so I became quite <clears throat> unruly as a child, I suppose, uh, from the age of around about seven years of age. And and I suppose I was getting picked up and brought home by the police from when I was about eight or nine. You know, uh, you know, so so we would we'd, we'd, we'd be in like uh, local shops uh, in 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 our local area, and I'd be teaching other kids to shoplift and everything like that. So you know, and because I was under the uh, uh, the age of being criminally responsible, uh, I'd just kind of be being brought home by the police and getting a kind of a telling off from them, so to speak. You know, so uh, yeah, uh, but. 
yeah, but it, it was in uh, um, uh, just between eleven and twelve uh, was when I got my first criminal conviction. Though, so as soon as I became like a criminally responsible, you know, uh, I, I, that, that 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 was when I first sort of like uh, was put into one of the cells and then kind of like um, I was charged. Uh, and I remember I was speaking to my mum recently about it, you know, and she said, you remember when she came to pick me up? She went, you just came out of the cell and you just didn't care. You know, it was as if you just walked out your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that, obviously, now, you, you said they're age 11. Um, and yeah. for, most, for most young people or, or kids age 11, that, that may be a very traumatic and, and difficult time. How, how did you... In terms of a young Gatlin, how did how did you manage that process? Or as your mom said, you looked as if you were just walking out of your bedroom. What what was going through your your mind at that time? Uh, so it's it's quite good because it's the same thing. I kind of got to go back a bit as well, you know. So so uh, so I suppose really because my mum was also a care leaver. My mum uh, had learning difficulties, and my mum wasn't able to give me the love, care, and nurture that I needed really to develop as a human being. I love my mum today and I understand my mum's story and, and I went through like a bit of a forgiveness process. Um, but I suppose really um, I learned how to take care and look after myself and get my own needs met from a very, very young age. You know, uh, uh, I was put into a foster placement at the age of two. I was in a foster placement at the age of five. I was in a serious bus accident as well when I was five years of age. And whenever I think back to all of them, that never once did I miss my mum or my family or want to go home. Uh, I was able to just really, really adapt to whatever situation I was put within. Uh, and I can remember as a child, and this might sound really, really crazy to, 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 to the people listening to this, but I remember just going into that cell, uh, just getting a pillow and putting my head down and going to sleep. And I just and I slept soundly until they woke me up to interview me. I had my interview, you know, and then went back into the cell, put my head down, went to sleep again until they opened the door up. And 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 that's what I did. That, that, that's that's you know. And uh, but I, yeah, I just suppose I found a way to adapt and cope with whatever my surroundings were. Yeah, I I, I think you you touched on a key word there, Gavin. Um, cope. I mean, yeah. I, 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 is that something that? served you in those very early stages of your life that you've brought with you in terms of your your living and what you do today or or did you manage each process as you encountered it yeah so i suppose i'll call them like superpowers yeah yeah uh, uh, and these are my superpowers uh, uh is you know i've got i've got an abundance of resilience i've got like a pool of resilience that that most people just uh, uh, that just wouldn't would, wouldn't wouldn't even be able to understand. But it's not just having the resilience. I'm also able to tap into it, hold it, and use it. Uh, and I also have sort of like a real internal uh, strength and courage uh, to just 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 continue no matter what. Yeah, no matter what, just continue. Um, and and I developed these through like a place of dysfunction and pain and hurt. But today I call them my superpowers, you know, because it's that that just kind of pushes me forward and and, and gives me that I, everything I have today. Yeah, no, and and um, um, I think we'll touch on some of those superpowers as we as we move through different parts of your journey. Yeah. Now, just t- take me forward slightly, if you will. Uh, I read something on a previous interview you gave, which really struck a chord with me. I've I've two young daughters, aged thirteen years. And it was your first experience of a detention centre um, at age 14 that, that really had an impact on me when I was reading it. Do you want to just 
tell the listeners about that whole journey to that to that center? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you, like you said as before, I'll give you a little bit more of a backstory to it as well. So at the age of 12, uh, I, I, I was in court again and, and I got given a full care order. Uh, so, you know, I always think about that word care order. I remember the order, but not that much of the care. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the social but, workers, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, but when I got into the children's homes, my brother had already been in children's homes, and I was hoping to be reunited with my brother, but that never happened. They kind of separated us, uh, so so I became very chaotic in the children's homes, you know, and and I was running away from children's homes. I didn't have anywhere to go, so I was sleeping rough in towns and cities across the south of England, and I was getting into lots of trouble, getting thrown out of lots of different homes. Uh, and by the thirty, by the age of thirteen. Uh, they'd already kind of didn't know what else to do with me. And I was put into what was called a remand home called Glen House. And it had open units and secure units and education on site. Uh, and I was the youngest one in that home as well by two years. Uh, so everybody else was around about 15, 16. And I was only first seen at the time. Uh, but I had some I had some court cases outstanding and uh, and back in them days you had to be 14 before you could get a custodial sentence and I kept adjourning it until my 14th birthday uh, and literally two weeks after my 14th birthday uh, uh, I was given a, a sentence in detention centre um, and and yeah and it had a huge massive impact on my life you know and uh, you know and and the truth of the matter is I was a 14 year old child. And a bit like what you say, yeah, is I never realised I was a child until my own son turned 14. And then I just remember just how young I was. But I can remember that day vividly and it's, it's massively imprinted in my mind, you know. And, uh, and, and, and I can remember sort of like, because uh, uh, it was before the days of the sweat boxes and I was in the back of a police car and driving up to this detention centre. But because of the environments that I'd been within, I already knew what these places were like. I knew about the violence, the intimidation and the bullying, you know, and that wasn't just from the staff. It was also from the other youngsters in there. And I was only a slip of a lad, you know what I'm saying? So I had a lot of fear inside of me. But also as well, because of coming through the care system as I had, I wouldn't show anybody that fear. I'd just hold it all inside. I wouldn't let any of that out. But I remember going through the gates of that uh, prison. It was Send Detention Centre, HMP Send. It's a, it's a women's place now between Woking and Guildford. But I remember going through that gate for the first time. And I can remember getting out of the car and walking and seeing my first ever prison officer. And they don't look like they do today. This was in 1985. And they had like blue shirts. They had peaked caps, big shiny boots, proper sergeant major type. And he just looked at me and he went, boy, get here. And me as like really self-respected youngster, I was just strutted over because I wasn't going to let him see that I was scared. And I remember he just looked at me and went, when you're in here, you don't walk, you don't run, you fucking fly. And he just threw me into reception. And, uh, and my feet just didn't touch the floor for the next two hours. And I had like fully grown men screaming and shouting in my face, telling me I was a waste of space. I disrespected my family, my community. I'd let everybody down. None of them knew that I'd just kind of come through the care system. I can remember as that 14-year-old child as well, being literally stripped naked in front of these fully grown men and just being given a card with a number, M33681, uh, and Jones. And they said, that's all you are, Lee. You're just a number. You're nothing more. You do not exist. And I remember these words powerfully just being thrown in my face. And, you know, and I just remember after, after, with every interaction that I had with them, 
there was just a knowledge that said, if you do not comply, violence will be the outcome. And I can remember at the end of that two hours, you know, being double timed round to the induction and going into that cell for the first time. And I remember the silence of that room really, really well. And I can remember lying on my bed and for the first time in my entire life, I put, I put the blanket over my head and I cried. I literally cried into my pillow. And I wanted someone, just anyone, to come and take me away. And nobody came. Yeah. And, uh, and at that point in my life, uh, something inside of me broke. And I always said it was like three things kind of like were imprinted on my mind. And it just said, I was never, ever going to trust another living soul. And the only person I could depend upon was me. And I was no longer going to play your game. And, um, and that just kind of was this, the uh, blueprint for my life for the next 20 years. Yeah. And you mentioned those, those three things there, Gath, and obviously your, your deep mistrust of, of adults are, are more, probably more aligned with authoritative figures, um, given what you'd experienced through the curse system and, and obviously now the detention, um, the, 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 the fact that you were thrown in through a reception and in effect bullied um, and coerced and manhandled by obviously I'm assuming grown men, uh, as, yeah. as you say, a 14 year old kid and then being, being put in that cell with nothing but your thoughts um, and how you were going to basically make it till tomorrow morning and then survive the next, the next chapter of your life. I mean, what gave, you know, you said something broke, what, what gave you the resolve to, to see that through, not only into the next morning, but moving into the next phase of, of your life. So, so yeah, so it's funny because I, I suppose um, it's funny actually because I, 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 people always talk about living in the now, living in the moment. Uh, and I think I always lived in the moment in them days. Yeah, I never thought about ahead, never thought about the future. So it was always about survival in that moment, in that time. And I can remember in that prison as well, <laughs> you know, I was only 14 years of age, but I already knew a couple of kids in the jail. Yeah, and there's a bloke called Carly Wheeler. Sadly, he's no longer with us. He died of it as a heroin addict. Uh, but just knowing that there was other kids in there that I knew in the same position as me made me feel not alone. And that's how I kind of survived it. Um, but I suppose really the, the impact of it, I remember like the day I got released from there was the day I started to glue sniff. Yeah. And that was when my substance misuse probably started. If I wanted to trace it all the way back. And I suppose really that, 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 that became my uh, way of surviving the trauma of what kind of happened within my life. I just, I just hid behind substances, behavior, uh, and, and anything really. And, and like, literally, like I said, just, I, I was just in the moment all the time. People used to say, you don't care about anyone or anything. And, and all I ever cared about was myself in that moment and how I was going to survive. Yeah. And, Tell me about that that next phase then, Gatham, because obviously you'd mentioned your addictions and, and obviously masking the pain and, and living from moment to moment. And people had said you didn't care about any one of the outcome of your behaviours on, on any anybody or anything. So how, how, did that, how did that start to spiral out of control for you? Tell me about obviously yeah. how you, you, you back encountered the, the prison system again and, and how that started to, to move forward. So, so is yeah. So it it was just a bit of a roller coaster. So I got out and I went back into Glen House, and like I said, I started to glue sniff and everything like that. And and I was very chaotic in my behaviours, you know. And, and in Glen House, there was a secure unit as well. 
Uh, and uh, I went into secure units when I was 14 years of age and 15 years of age. Uh, and they were what was called a place of safety to protect me from myself because they believed my own behavior was going to kill me. Um, and then, like, what happened was uh, when I was 15, uh, uh, I was it ended up, I was kept getting loads of trouble. I was always in and out of courts. And at the age of 15, I can remember like uh, going to court with my best friend Michael Sullivan. Um, and we was in court, and social services stood up and said, There's nothing more we can do for them. Uh, so we got remanded to Winchester Prison when I was 15 years of age. Uh, and I call that the full stop on my childhood, you know. And, uh, and I'll just give you some stats here as well in relation to care leavers. Yes, yeah? so care leavers make up 1% of the population of the UK. Okay. Uh, but what they make up is 40% of the young person's prison estate and 26% of the adult estate. I believe it's higher in the adult estate, but once somebody gets past 25, they don't have to disclose. And most people won't disclose because it's seen as a black mark. So what we do as a society at the moment is we see the uh, uh, the vulnerability of a child and we safeguard them and put them into the care system. They then respond negatively in their behaviour linked to their trauma. We then punish and criminalise the behaviour and then put them into the next system. And that's kind of what happened to me, really. And, like, you know, I spent, I spent most... I, I probably spent at least four years in prison between the age of uh, uh, 15 and 21. Uh, I had all of my significant birthdays. I had my 15th birthday and uh, my, uh, my 16th birthday, my 17th birthday. I was out for my 18th, in for my 19th, my 21st, you know. And, uh, yeah, and I, I was just a disaster. And I just went from one disaster to another. Um, and when I was 20 years of age and uh, my, my drug use had, uh, sort of was increasing outside and I was selling drugs and I got, uh, I got arrested for uh, selling ecstasy. And I ended up getting a three-year sentence on the old rule, which meant I'd done two years. Um, and on that sentence, uh, I was introduced to heroin. So I found heroin in prison. Um, and then that was that was the end. That was literally the end at that point. You know, I got out of that sentence uh, with, with, with a taste for heroin. And, uh, you know, and, and my life just went out of control from that point, you know. Uh, so I started smoking the heroin, then I was injecting the heroin. Uh, then that wasn't enough, so I was drinking on top of it. And then I was smoking crack cocaine on top of it, uh, taking Valium to Marzipan, you know. And, and when they say yeah, yeah, they use the word junkie, you know, I was just that, you know. I would just put any junk into my body whatsoever because I just wanted to escape. Um, and that kind of went up until the age of uh, uh, 29 uh, and I got arrested. And I always say probably that sentence saved my life. It saved my life. If I hadn't got arrested and locked up at that point, I don't think I'd be here today. You know, I was I was putting huge amounts of heroin into me. I was injecting straight into the neck, you know, uh, and yeah, it was like a shotgun. It was Russian roulette. Um, and if I hadn't got locked up then, I'll just, I'd have been dead. I just wouldn't be here today. Yeah. What? How were you, how were you feed, feeding the habit, Gathin, when you were, were on that, those mixture of substances? Where where were you living? You know that type of you know. Tell yeah. me about tell me about that two to six years because that's I mean I, I obviously hear stories. I've I've spoke to people myself personally who who've been addicts and they they beg, borrow, steal, and whatever they yeah. can to get that hit. So so I I, I had uh, I, I had a very long suffering ex partner okay and they say sometimes with addicts they don't take partners they take prisoners uh, and she was a non addict uh, so what she was able to do she was able to kind of like 
keep a roof over our head, so to speak, you know, and, and I, was, I was a father to two children. Uh, so, so, what I, it, it was, so what I'd be doing at that time was I was selling drugs. So I'd sell drugs, but that was to pay for my own habit, you know, and, uh, uh, and I was quite kind of successful at that, so to speak, in relation to being able to maintain my habit. Uh, but what happened was because of all of the dysfunction, the relationship was kind of breaking down. And, and, uh, and then it got to a point where she was like, I can't do this anymore. Uh, and so that was then when I started then sort of like, uh, I, I, you know, because I used to have my pride and my ego, you know, so I wasn't able to sell the drugs anymore because I'd been completely out of control and that sort of stuff. I was begging, robbing, you know, I'd be holding people up by knife point and stealing off of other addicts, you know, I'd be begging off beggars, you know, so I'd let beggars kind of like uh, just stay in squats that I was at so that I could use some of what it was that they'd be getting during the day. You know, I spent time in the streets and in homeless hostels. And, yeah, it was just a very, very pitiful life, really. You know, it was uh, there was nothing glamorous about it whatsoever. Uh, and, you know, and, 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 you know, and I'd manipulate my ex-partner and, and get money off of her. I broke into her house and, you know, all, all the stuff that I always believed that I'd never, ever do. I did because sort of like the, 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 the pull for the drugs and the needs to just to escape was just so strong. Yeah, uh, uh, an, an unbelievable, I'm sure. And I, I can't even, having never been in that situation, Gethin, in terms of, of heroin and, uh, and that whole experience of sort of begging or, or sleeping rough for obviously trying to trying to manipulate and, and hold another. So, I mean, it, 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 to, to feed that habit, um, you know, I can only, I can only imagine, I can't empathise of, of, of how, you were you were dealing with that process. So you yeah. you obviously mentioned age twenty nine, you got sentenced, it saved your life. Um yeah. was it, was that in terms of um you were were you suicidal at that stage or were you as you say just you were you were putting anything into your body so it was it was it was only a matter of time before you potentially uh, met the maker? Yeah, yeah, and it, it was either gonna be me uh killing myself or somebody killing me. Uh, so, so I wasn't a very, I wasn't a violent or aggressive person. Yeah, I could put on the persona uh, to kind of keep people at bay, uh, but there was a lot, a lot of people that were far more violent and aggressive around me than me. And because I was at such a desperate stage, I was, I was starting to upset lots of the wrong people. You know, and and there was a few occasions that I walked away by the skin of my teeth. You know, uh, and so yeah, so that that would have been the outcome. But, I, but what happened was I kind of got caught with uh, uh, an ounce of heroin, um, uh, which is why I kind of got locked up. And, and I can just remember, I call this like my, my physical rock bottom, you know, and I can remember being in uh, Winchester prison and detoxing off of heroin, crack cocaine, alcohol uh, and barbiturates like Valium and Tamazepan and other stuff. Um, and I can just remember uh, being stripped of all of my civilian clothes and I had like open abscesses, you know, I was completely underweight and withdrawn and, you know, and I was just, I was just like, my God, you know, it was the first time I was kind of like, I saw myself and I just knew something had to change. I just knew that, that, that I had to do something different, but I didn't know what that was, you know, like, you know, lots of people talk about change and rehabilitation. Yeah, and I always struggle with the word rehabilitation because for me, rehabilitate 
means make something what it once was, yeah? So if you break your arm, you go to a physio and then they do some exercises with you so your arm can work as it was, yeah? But how can you make something what it never was, yeah? So I was just always what I was. When people used to say to me I needed to change, it was like, but change into what? I don't even know what you're talking about. The, the word rehabilitation doesn't even come into it. Um, so, yeah, so I was just kind of in this place of knowing something needed to kind of shift and change. And uh, and what I did was when I was on that set, when I was on Raman, uh, there was a few of my old friends there that weren't heroin addicts. And I kind of like, I just kind of hung around with them. And for the first time, when I was on the prison wing, I tried not to take any drugs. And I was kind of getting some negative uh, drug tests whilst I was in the prison uh, because I wanted to try to show the courts that I was trying so they wouldn't give me such a harsh sentence. And for the first time, I was going to see if I could try to do something positive on the sentence to help me kind of move away from the lifestyle I was in. Um, and fortunately, the judge, you know, and I remember his words really well. And he, and he said to me, he went, he went Geffen, he goes, uh, I can see that you're really trying to help. Uh, so I'm going to kind of give you a sentence which I hope will help you rather than damage you. Uh, and he gave me a four-year sentence, um, you know, and that might sound quite harsh for people. It is on the old rule. You had to do two years, eight months out of it. But at the time, I was looking at a minimum of seven years, you know. So so, so I, I kind of felt really kind of like uh, uh, grateful to the judge uh, for taking notice of what it was I was trying to do. Yeah, I, I mean, as you say, not a lot of people will will relate to that, Gaston. Obviously, you, you'd been through the system. You knew how to manage it. Um, you knew the ins and outs. You knew who you needed to align with, and you, and you knew potentially what you needed to do moving forward. But even even saying a four-year sentence, you'll do two years, eight months. I mean, I, know, I can see some people sitting back with their mouths open <laughs> as we're talking, going, Jesus, I would struggle after seven days, and this man's talking about two years, eight months. Being, you know, he's, he's, great, he's grateful for it. <laughs> I oh, know it's, it's it's a different world, isn't it? But yeah. <laughs> uh. so so what? So you you've you've got that as you you called it sort of a a reduced uh, sentence. So what happened to Gavin in those two years eight months that 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 made that switch? So so I kind of had a bit of an awakening. So uh, I went off to a uh, a prison called HMP Coldly and they had a, uh, a drug treatment program on there. Yeah. And the same sort of thing at that point. If I, I won't lie to you. I'll be I'm always honest, people. Yeah. So my whole point as well of like uh, going I- into this drug treatment program was so I thought to myself, look, if I can just get in handle on the drugs. Yeah. When I can get out, I can just sell them and not use them. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. the only reason why I was doing it. Yeah, maybe I could get some parole and get out a bit earlier. You know, I didn't have any like desire to stop being a criminal. Yeah, because I didn't know anything else. That was just me. Um, but I remember I went in there and I was asked to listen to this fella speak. Yeah, and uh, and I, I and I remember going into this room and seeing this bloke, and he came in and he was all really well dressed. And I remember being sat there with me prison shoulders on because I've been down the gym looking all pumped, and I'm just looking at this fella thinking, "Who are you?" What do you know about my life? What do you know about me, mate? Uh, and then he just started to talk about his life. And when he was sharing his story, I just identified with his story. I knew where he'd been. And then he started to share about he had this new life. And he talked about he had a flat on the King's Road, that he had a job, he had a family, he went on holidays, he had a driving license. And I just remember, like, my jaw written the floor because I'd never seen that before. I'd never seen anybody who has kind of changed and turned their life around. 
And what I always say on that day is, is, is he gave me hope. Yeah. And I've recently created a program which I've called Hope. And what hope actually stands for, and I've got this uh, from uh, an IPP prisoner that I'm working with in Leicester Prison. And hope stands for, what he said, hope stands for hearing other people's experiences. Yeah, hearing other people's experiences. And that's what happened on that day. I heard his experience. He showed me there was another way. And I had a spark, a spark that just said, there's an alternative. There's an alternative. Um, and, and that was the start of what I'd call a five-year journey. A five-year journey has changed, you know, and that's why I say rehabilitation doesn't come into it because I had to go through a complete shift in identity. I had to completely transform my belief systems, uh, what, 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 what I believed was right, what I believed was wrong, you know, what it meant to be a human being, what it meant to be a man, a father. I had to do so much work, you know, and, and, and that's why I just think people have got no idea what they're talking about when some people say, oh, we just need to give them a job and somewhere to live. It's so much more than that. Yeah, Nate, I've read some of your work and, and listened to some of your interviews, and it's, it, it's clear to me that you, you, you basically had to go deep and you had to do the work. And I know for some people, they find that hard to understand or they'll, they'll, or they'll find it too difficult. Gathin, what, what did you do in terms of those five years that, that basically kept you moving from day to day to, to as you say, find, find that better place or an alternative way? So um goes back to my superpowers, really. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I always say my biggest gift was I wouldn't give up giving up. Okay, so uh, so what it was was because I had so much to unpick. I had so much trauma, so much that had happened within my life that I kind of done it in a bit like bite-sized pieces, yes? Yeah? So now like when somebody goes to university, you rather look at the big thing, there's like little bite-sized pieces. Uh, and what I did over that five years, I had to keep going in and out of treatments, yeah? So I've done quite a few different residential treatment programs. You know, I was very fortunate, very lucky uh, because it was a Labour government. There was a lot of money around at the time, which meant that there was a lot more opportunities. And I kind of went into eight different treatment programs. I went through psychotherapy. I went through talking therapies, acceptance and commitment therapies, 12-step therapies. You name it, I kind of went through it because there was just so much damage that I didn't even realize that I was living with, you know, and I see it all the time, you know, is, is, is you, you've got people that are responding to undiagnosed and unrecognized trauma. They don't even realize they're traumatized. They're just living a life that they've been given that they just can, they, they turn up to every single day. And, and that was kind of me, you know, and, and, and what would happen is like, I kind of go through these processes and I do so much and it become that painful. I like literally, Literally, I'd have to withdraw and leave and I'd usually sabotage it uh, and get away from it, you know. But as soon as I'd kind of leave, I'd already know that I need to go back. I need to work on this sort of stuff. But it, it, it wasn't going to be a linear process. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, I, I do know some people that literally they've done it first time, you know. They kind of went into a program, bang, I've got a friend of mine, he done it first time in, and he's 17 years away from it now. But that just wasn't my journey, you know. Yeah, I was was during that time, Gatton. Was there any relationships that you formed? Did you have anyone from the past that you you could connect with and go, oh, actually, that person was was trying to help me, and I I didn't understand it at the time, but I realise now what they were trying to do. 
Yeah, yeah, there was lots of people. There were there, there were professional people. There were kind of personal people. You know, it's, I'll tell you a little funny story, actually, because I always say, when people say, what is you dependent on? And I used to I'll say to people, I was dependent on everything and everyone. Yeah, everything and everyone. When you talk about being institutionalised, I was as institutionalised out here as I was in there. I could not cope and live a life on my own. And so what used to happen was I used to sabotage these treatment programmes and then when I'd be out, come out, I'd have nowhere to live. So I'd just go and be able to manipulate my mates and get them to put me up and blah, blah, blah. I got kicked out of this one rehab and, and I've got these two friends, uh, JP and Trev, Anyway, I'm, I'm ringing them up here to try to kind of get hold of them so that I can kind of uh, uh, stay, in their, stay in their place. And they said to me, what's happened? I said, oh, I got kicked out of the rehab. Um, and anyway, they go, no, we can't help you, Giff. You know, you'll have to just go and sort stuff out yourself. And I'm like, what do you mean sort stuff out yourself? So anyway, I've ended up then going to have to sleep rough. And I'm sleeping rough sober with no drugs in me, yeah, which is a whole different ballgame, yeah. And I remember keep trying to ring them up. And they was just ignoring my phone calls. And I was like... What are you doing? Just answer the phone. I need help, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and I was angry, really angry. And, and I remember uh, talking to them uh, later when I kind of sorted myself out. And they said, Geff, it was tough love. We knew that if we'd have taken you in, yeah, it wouldn't have helped you. We had to let you get to that place where you stepped up and done something for yourself. Um, and, and that's what I did. With you know, The next morning, I was like, wow, I ain't sleeping on little streets like this, stone cold sober. And I went and got myself into a homeless hostel. Yeah. Now, I've, I've read a quote of yours, which I think sums that story up perfectly. And it goes like this. There is no I in team, but there are three in personal responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's a lot of the programs that uh, uh, that I kind of do is, is, you know, there's, there's no I in team, but there's three I's in personal responsibility. And it's always about what is it I can do to make this situation better? You know, and uh, and, and a re another reason for that personal responsibility stuff was uh, I blamed everyone and everything for my life. Yeah, I blamed the whole world for my life, you know, uh, uh, and it was everybody else's fault but my own. You know, and uh, and someone once said to me, they said to me, they went, Giff, whenever you're doing that blaming, you're pointing the finger at people. Yeah. Finger at other people. But they said, but always remember, when you're pointing the finger at somebody else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Yeah. Three fingers pointing back at you. Uh, and then what I adapted was them three fingers pointing back at me and the three eyes of personal responsibility. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. three eyes of personal responsibility. So whenever I kind of found myself blaming or pointing somebody, I'd see them three fingers and think, what can I do to make something better? What can I do to change this? Yeah. Now, before we moved on to the, 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 the transformation, which is, which is extraordinary to listen to, um, to be honest, Gethin, what, what, what gave you the inspiration after all those times spent in Kerr and prison to, to basically to put that down on paper and, and share it for the world to read in, in your book, Unconscious Incarceration. So I suppose really, so, so when, well, I, I was a little bit different to most other people. Okay. So I turned my life around in 2006. Um, and at that point, uh, I kind of knew that I didn't want anything to do at that time with the criminal justice system or the substance misuse world. I didn't understand why at that time, but what I kind of know now is it had been my whole life and I wanted as far away from it as possible. Uh, so I just kind of like, uh, I went into youth services and worked in youth services 
And like literally uh, at that point in my life, I had no qualifications and no work history. Uh, and within a seven year period, I went from two hours a week volunteering uh, to seven years later being a service manager within Ports of City Council on Public Health overseeing a staff team of 40 to reduce health inequalities to the most deprived area of the city that I grew up within. Uh, I also was well at that point when, when I want to turn my life around. I had no qualifications. I'd been expelled from school at 12. And at the same time as well, uh, I educated myself to the equivalent of a degree and got an MVQ5 in leadership and management within children's services. Uh, so I had kind of like a few things kind of shift. You know, uh, I sadly lost my brother uh, to terminal lung cancer and he didn't smoke or anything like that you know and uh, uh, and it started to make me question my life and my purpose and what it was that I was doing uh, and then also the the fellow I mentioned earlier JP uh, he actually relapsed again um, and sadly passed away as well and then what I did was when I was looking at what I was doing within the public sector even though I had like a really well-paid job and everything like that I just felt everything was a token gesture uh, and I wasn't really being able to kind of initiate or deliver the change that I really wanted to. Uh, and that's when I kind of really, uh, so it was 10 years after that, that I, 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 I dusted down the story, really. I dusted up the story and I presented the story to the world uh, in relation to setting up uh, Unlocking Potential. Uh, and that's the reason why I've done all of the books, I've done all of the stories, I've done all of the talks and everything I do is because I just want to change hearts and minds, really, uh, and show people, you know, that um, uh, uh, rehabilitation and changing people's lives is everyone's responsibility. You know, it's everyone's responsibility. And, you know, and if we can kind of see people more on a human level Every single one of us can reach out and touch somebody and maybe help uh, them to live a better, better, better life. Yeah. Now, you mentioned um, the seven year journey. I, I went on a, a five year journey upon leaving the system, Catherine, at, at 18 to, to basically uh, gain a foothold in education. A bit like yourself, I had, I had no formal education upon, upon leaving when I was 16. Um, so I, I did a five year journey so I can, I can relate with a lot of a lot of things that you're saying in respect to that. Just tell me, how, how did you find that whole process in terms, you mentioned, you know, two hours a week volunteering right through to managing a, a staff team of 40. Was was that all your, as you called them, superpowers coming out in action? Was there people that were helping you um, pave the way? Were you, were you getting opportunities or, or were you creating opportunities yourself? Yeah, so so I suppose it's different. So if I just explain, like, the, the two hours a week volunteering, yeah, I remember when I went and do that, done that, that was the most uncomfortable two hours of my week. Yeah. Uh, and the reason why I explain that to people is, is because sort of like, I was used to being in an environment that was either related to prisons, drugs, crime and everything like that. And that was my whole communication. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm spending two hours a week uh, with these people uh, that talked about mortgages and holidays and family and all of this stuff. And it was like stuff I didn't know how to even communicate with you know and so i just found it really uncomfortable um but i've got another book uh, which is the sequel to unconscious incarceration so unconscious incarceration is about shifting your mindset and changing your way of thinking i've got another one which is called how to fuck up and still succeed yeah i love that one <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and how to fuck up and still succeed is literally uh about how it is that we move into action and part of that is about creating support networks, yeah? So I always say we represent the five people we most hang around with. 
you know. So when I was taking drugs and into crime, that was all I hung around with was people like that. So when I sort of like went down the new path in the career move, I just started to create new powers of five and new support networks, you know, uh, and then have the ability to kind of like uh, to, to ask them for help. Yeah. So all of the stuff that I've learned through my uh, transformation and my uh, and my therapeutic process, I put into the work process. So I wasn't scared to ask for help um, and I wasn't scared of making a mistake or failing or asking questions, you know, and uh, and that kind of served me really really well you know and uh yeah and and i think you know uh that, that same sort of stuff yeah the superpowers because i had just like a real resilience a real strength a courage a determination just to succeed i just moved through the ranks really really quickly you know uh but i think what else also happened as well especially sort of like within the industry that i was within within children's services uh because i could see it from both sides uh, it became very apparent quite quickly that I could lead and manage other people so that they could better support the clients that they served, you know, and, and that's just kind of how it evolved, really. And that's kind of also as well what's led into what it is that I do today, because I'm doing exactly what I did today, uh, what I did within my, 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 my working career, but I just do it on a much bigger level now. Yeah, Nate, you've obviously, you've obviously gleaned a huge amount of of wisdom and and lived experiences from from your time obviously within the system how, how are you saying that now gatham in, in terms of implementing change within that system are you are you facing pushback and resistance are you are you trading water or is there is there something happening in terms of people respecting not only your own journey and your achievements but actually what you have what you have to say so um yeah, it's quite it's quite phenomenal, really, as well. So five years ago, nobody at all knew me within the criminal justice system. Uh, the, the the lived experience consultancy work in relation to the uh, probation reform program. I'm literally working with the highest tiers within the the the, the within Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service. Um, but what's happened is over a period of time is uh, is you know is I do that thing about under promise and over deliver. Yeah. And what it is as well is is I've not been massively overcritical to people. Yeah. Because what I've found throughout this journey is that, you know, people do want to help. Yeah. But sometimes they do the wrong thing for the right reason. And the reason they do the wrong thing for the right reasons, they don't truly understand the problem because they're not talking to the right people. You know, so I've just kind of had a real delicate way of just sort of like highlighting this you know so i see lots of other people in the reform uh in the for the reformer uh, uh window whatever you want to kind of call it and they're very i think people do yeah but they never come out with a solution of what it is that they can do you know so i've kind of been this person that said yeah i have kind of highlighted what's wrong but i've also come out with a solution or an idea um and and that's so i suppose now they really see me as a critical friend they don't see me as somebody that's trying to sabotage them. They see me as somebody that really wants to kind of help them. Uh, and that's kind of supported uh, uh, me to get where, where, where I am today. And, and I suppose, really, some of this comes from the lived experience, yeah? So uh, uh, it's, it's funny. People sometimes say to me, they go, oh, so what kind of prisoner was you then, Giff? And I said, I was a bit like Fletcher from Porridge, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> and if, if you think of Fletcher from Porridge, yeah, right, he had... High levels of communication and diplomacy skills, 
Yeah, so he was able to get all of his needs met by the prison officers, the governors and whoever that was, but at the same time be able to keep his credibility with some of the most dangerous people within that prison. Yeah, yeah. high levels of communication diplomacy. That's who I was. Yeah, so they'll call this a transferable skill. Okay, so I kind of brought that into today and what it is that I do. Uh, like I say, I've also got a leadership and management qualification. I also call this a transferable skill. When I was in children's zones, I used to get kicked out of children's zones for leading kids astray. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you lead somebody left or you lead somebody right. It's all about influence. Yeah. yeah. And being able to make someone believe that your idea is the right idea and they need to follow your path so that you can get, deliver the outcome. You know, and I suppose really that's the stuff that I've brought into the space that I'm working within at the moment. Um, and, and it's just kind of really, it's, it's just works well. And, and if I'm honest with you, I, I, I don't, I think also as well, another area that I come from as well, and, and I've, done, I've learned this through my working experience here. Yeah? So what it was as well, when I was in my professional career, I didn't tell my peers about my past. It was only the management that knew because of the DBS. And I always remember when I'd be with the staff, the staff sometimes would be moaning about the service user. Yeah, When they'd be moaning about the service user, I used to listen to them. I used to think, do you know what? You're not right, but you're also not wrong. Yeah. And then what would happen is I'd get a complaint from a service user about their staff member. And I'd listen to the service user and I'd think, do you know what? You're not right, but you're also not wrong. The answer's in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what it is that I'll kind of bring into the space that I'm at the moment. And that's what they kind of see is, you know, you know a lot of the people who live the experience, they're not right, but they're not wrong. And also the people that are working within the, the system, they're also not right and not wrong. And I'll try to facilitate that gray area so that we can find out what the real solution is so that we can move forward and have a better system going forward. Yeah. Um what what's what's your plans, Gatlin, as you say, moving forward with, with the work you're doing with unlocking potential? Is it is it very geographically targeted present? Are you looking to move into other areas? Um tell me a bit more about that. So yeah, so so uh, we we've unlocking potential itself. Uh I want to continue this uh as more of a consultancy um uh, 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 role, okay, uh in relation to what I'm doing now, which is about uh influencing legislation and strategies, you know, from uh from the top tiers of HMPPS uh and also within Westminster. Um and then also as well, I've got a plan next year, uh, which is uh, I'm going to be open, uh, creating a CIC uh, and the CIC, a community interest company, and it's going to be called Locked Up Potential. OK, uh, so I always say when I work in prison is like, you know, my company is unlocking potential, but you're locked up potential. But the truth of the matter is. The person that's got your key to get out of here is not the prison officer, it's you. You've just got to learn how to turn it and open the door. Uh, so what I'm going to be doing within that is uh, I'm going to be looking at um, uh, uh, recruiting lots of other people with a lived experience uh, that can kind of work uh, in different prisons around the UK uh, to be able to develop, deliver personal responsibility programs that can support people to make, to make changes in prison and then support them post-prison uh, and then be able to kind of just hold their hand and navigate them to uh, what it is that they need for their life yeah it's it's a it's a brilliant not only a, not only a brilliant story in terms of what you've just shared but but what you want to do with that moving forward and as you say some of those some of those people that are locked up 
don't realise their potential, or as or as others would see, or they would see themselves as, as you know, how can I be an asset to myself? That that takes a mindset switch, as you know, Gethin, yeah. and help helping people do that while they're not only within the walls in terms of prison, but probably living within their own headspace in terms of how do I break free from this? Um, I've I've got two final questions for you before you go. Um, where can where can people find you who want to connect with you? Uh, so, yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Geffen Jones, Unlocking Potential, uh, usually comes up as inspirational speaker, but I don't do that as much anymore. Uh, you can also find me on uh, Twitter, uh, and that's uh, Geffen Unlocks, uh, and I've also got a website, which is uh, www.unlockingthepotential.co.uk. Uh, and then there's there's uh, there's an info email address on there, so there's a contact if you want to contact me via that as well. Yeah, fantastic. And one one final one, and I think this will probably want to be one of the most unique answers we've had on the podcast to date, given your given your life transitions. If if you could speak to your younger self, what message would you give you? Oh, what message would I give me? Um, Literally, I would just say people do care. People do care. Um, uh, and there's a story behind that as well. I'll just, I'll just give you this just as a glimpse, but this, is, this, isn't, this isn't just one person. This has happened a few times. So when I said I'd done the volunteering work for two hours a week, yeah, it was for an organization that had a five-glass workshop that made boats and also done sailing. I remember walking in there uh, to meet this fella called Tony Weeks. And I remember his name was familiar. Yeah. And when I walked in there, he said, uh, he said, do you remember me? And I went, nah. I said, but your name sounds familiar. And he went, I used to look after you in secure units when you was a kid. And in my head, I thought, that's me, fuck, then he ain't giving me a job. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said to me, he said, tell me what's happened since I kind of like uh, I last saw you. So I kind of gave him this whole sorry story of my life. Uh, and then he's just gone. Geff, he goes, I'm willing to give you the opportunity. I'll take you on as a volunteer. And then what it was, was as I got to know Tony, back in them days, he was my enemy. And then what I realised was his whole life, he'd been trying to help some of the most hardest people to reach within society. But because I was so damaged at that time, I wasn't able to see it. You know, and I've met quite a few people from my childhood since then who are still dedicating their lives to helping people. So that's why if I could go back, I'd say, Geffen, people do care. I just wasn't yeah. in a place to see it. It's, it's, a, it's a brilliant takeaway message to end the show, Geffen. Can I wish you all the best with your future endeavours? I think a lot of people will resonate with, with what you have to say and best wishes for moving forward. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Michael, and I've, uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Bye now. Bye now. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, remember, keep it real.